And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines destroyed their forces to meet Israel. And as, battle, as, as the battle spread, Israel was, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Silo, the, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the, Lord, so the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that, that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these, all, of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of the Lord was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashod. When they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon, when the people of Ashod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. I am a home bunny. I don't like going away. I love home. Home is where your rump rests, says someone from Winnie the Pooh. I think it was Eeyore. But uh, I love being at home, and I hate going away. But when I do go away, modern technology is of great help to me. Not because of the humble phone call, but now you can do these amazing things on this gadget that I have a love-hate relationship with, a.k.a. the phone. You can do something called FaceTime. You can do something called WhatsApp, and that's an audio or a face-to-face uh, -face call. You can use the old-fashioned thing called Skype. Even that, no one posts letters anymore, but we do lots of things with modern communication that are great. You can see the person as you talk to them. You can look them in the eye. You can almost touch them, but you can't. FaceTime. I don't, I'm not sponsored by Apple, I assure you. FaceTime is a great invention along with Skype and WhatsApp. The face, something that we all have, is the premise behind this series. 
The idea that the Bible says you can draw near to God. You can draw near, you can come to his presence. It's as if you can see his face and live. Everyone has a face. And so we kind of use those words to say, oh yeah, they'll never say that to my face. When I see them, I'm going to speak to them in their face. It was a real in-your-face means of communication. The, the face is a piece of geography. It's here. We all have one. Some of them are asymmetric. Some of them are handsome. Some of them have had some work done, like mine. But the face is so important when it comes to who we are as people, looking a person in the eye rather than looking at the back of their head. If you just see the back of someone's head, you don't really get a sense of their emotions that are communicated on their face. But the trouble comes as we've journeyed through the Old Testament when we come to understand the person of God. God is a spirit. He is a person, but he is a spirit. So how does God have a face? How can we relate to him? How can we dare to draw near to him? Goes the idea and the question behind this series. If God is a spirit, that means his face is everywhere. His person is everywhere. It's possible to draw near to him. It's possible to communicate with him. It's possible to know him. And yet God is spirit. So how does that work? Well, two words for you, temporary and then routinely. Temporarily, we've seen that God draws near to his people in a number of ways. Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God draws near to Abraham and he takes the form of a smoking fire pot and a torch. Job. God draws near to Job, and it's a whirlwind. Jacob, Jacob, God draws near to Jacob, and he's a wrestler. Moses, that's a burning, a fiery bush. God draws near. But they're all temporary, because God is spirit. God chooses not to attach himself constantly, continually to any one thing, so far as I can see in the Bible. But there is one thing, that God appears to attach himself to that we read about in the Bible, 1 Samuel 4 and 5, in a routine way. Not always, but in a routine way. It's the ark. There's a picture up here. Here's this uh, piece of wonderful design and handiwork that God describes of how it's to be built and constructed in Exodus chapter 25. It's it's a piece of wood. It's almost a cube in dimension. In uh, modern money, It's about a metre wide and high and just over a metre deep or a metre and a half deep. It's about four and a half foot and a bit of imperial measurements for those of us that are on the right side of 50. Four and a half foot by four and a half foot, something like that. It's just roughly a cuboid. It's overlaid with gold. It has golden hooks so it can be carried, four, two on each side. And then on top of it... It has a thick layer of gold, heavy gold, named the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, you've got these two cherubim, these two angelic beings. This is just a representation. And they're looking in on each other. And in the middle, where you expect there to be a certain image, there's nothing. There's just air. But if you read the Old Testament, it's there in between the cherubim that the heavy light of God would descend. And God would speak from this void, in this space, from the top of the mercy seat. From there, God would speak. You would, uh, if you like, the angels, the cherubim, they're, they're communicating the face and the glory of God as they look into each other. And there, God spoke to the high priest and to Moses and to his people. The very voice of God would come out between the cherubim over the ark. 
And we need to understand that because the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, is central to this story. 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel 5. Let's do a little bit of background. The people of Israel are in an absolute state. It was an absolute mess. It's seen by uh, these two characters, Hophni and Phinehas. They were the two sons of Eli, who was the, uh, the priest of God at this time. Eli was growing old and very infirm. We can see that from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 to 18. But their lives, Hophni and Phinehas, they were symbolic of the decay, a bit like my tooth that was sorted out, that needed to be removed, no more dentistry puns at this point, needed to be extracted from Israel but that couldn't be crowned. That's the last one. It was an absolute mess in Israel, and it's seen in the life of Hophni and Phinehas. They seduced women who came to bring offerings to God. They would not worship God as they should have done. They stole, they embezzled. They were an absolute mess. Israel had sunk very, very low, and one of the signs of the depth of their lowness was what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 5, when once again the the baddies, if it was a pantomime, we would be booing at this point, the Philistines, who were Israel's arch enemies, they came and they attacked the Israelites, and something extraordinary, something unique happened. The people of God, the Israelites, were defeated. We can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. A number of thousands of people were defeated. And so, Hophni and Phinehas, verse 4 of 1 Samuel 4, they come up with a wonderful idea. They've heard the stories of old. We know what we will do. We know how to overcome our enemy. We will bring out, we'll blow the dust off because we've not worshipped God for a long time. We'll bring out the ark of God because that always brings success. We'll go before us. God will fight for us. We're not worshipping him, but he will fight for us and he will deliver his people. And something tragic happens. The ark is brought out and the people kind of hoop and holler. 1 Samuel 4 verse 5. So much as they shout, you can see the ground is shaking. Here comes the ark of God. God's going to fight for us. God is our banner. He's going to defeat the enemy. We're going to win. But then notice what happens. 1 Samuel 4 verse 10. Something happened that had never happened before. Samuel dies, but only after he's heard the news that 30,000 of God's people have been killed. They've been slaughtered. And the Philistines, the arch enemies of the people of God, have not just won the victory, but they've captured, not the flag, they've captured the ark of God and they've carried it off to their own land. Eli heard this, he fell backward and he died, verse 8 of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And now the ark of God, that's symbolic of God's presence, a symbol of his glory, the means through which he communicates to his people, is carried off to one of their hometowns, Ashdod. And they bring the ark in, and in 1 Samuel chapter 5, they put it before their God, the God of grain, namely Dagon. And it's very comical what happens. Look at it, 1 Samuel 5 verse 3, in comes the ark. As a spread bet, they've got Dagon there, and now they've captured the Ark of God. The God of Israel is now at their beck and call, so they think. Verse 3, there was Dagon, fallen on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and they put him back in his place. You can imagine the priests at this point thinking, if I get my hand on those teenagers, I'm going to kill them. What have they done? Who's been in here overnight and toppled over Dagon? But notice what happens the next day, verse 4 of 1 Samuel 5. 
But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold and only his body remained. The priest knew what this meant. In the ancient Near East, the the head was symbolic of wisdom. The hands were symbolic of power. If Dagon had fallen once, that would have been interesting. God is a God of power and might. But for Dagon to fall down a second time before the Ark of the Lord, that's very interesting and symbolic. Showing that uh, here before the God of Israel, the God of the Philistines fall. They're impotent, they're powerless, they're without power and they're without wisdom. And so head and the hands fall down. And in chapter 6, hitting the fast forward button, a terrible thing happens as tumors covers the Philistines and they say enough. It's kind of, we're cursed. We wish this, uh, the ark of God never came into our presence. Let's send it away. And they put it on a cart with some cattle and it goes back towards Israel and to God's people. And eventually it's taken back to Jerusalem where it belongs in the temple when it's built. And you're thinking, thanks a lot. What a weird story. I mean, we don't really have idols anymore that fall down. We don't have um, the Ark of God that's been lost thanks to Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford. Um, And maybe the dimensions were a bit wrong in that film as well. If anything, this tells us that God looks uh, capricious. God looks holy. God looks powerful, God looks cruel. What does this entire story talk us about drawing, tell us and teach us about drawing near to God? What do we get from this? Before we get there, I just want to make one sort of side point from uh, 1 Samuel 4 and into 5. Every year, the Oxford English Dictionary say a word of the year. We've had emoji, we've had a few other words. In uh, 2016, the word of the year, hyphenated word, was post-truth. We live in a post-truth culture, a post-truth society. It's the 2016 word of the year. It's very interesting and symbolic of our culture, of uh, the time of fake news and uh, Mr. Trump and all that sort of stuff. And it's also very interesting if you're exploring Christianity. What do I mean? 40, 50 years ago, when someone came to a church to say, I'm interested in finding out what Christianity is about. Can you explain to me a portion of the Bible? Can you show me from the Bible who God is? I've got some questions that need addressing. 40, 50 years ago, something like that, people would come with an inquiring spirit, perhaps with a bit of post-war legacy of knowing who the God of the Bible is. Show me Show me what it's about. Prove to me it's true. Those questions would be asked 40, 50 years ago. But now, in a society that's post-truth, people don't ask that question anymore. They say, show me if it works. They don't say, show me if it's true. They say, tell me if it works. Does it work for you? It's just like the people in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. It's just like the Philistines who had a, a pagan understanding uh, an economical understanding of who to worship. I don't don't mind if you worship someone different, but I want to worship someone that works. And if that works for you, great, but I worship this God or no God at all. And once again, what's interesting from this story that is absolutely unique, 1 Samuel 5, is when the Philistines bring in the ark of God before their God, thinking that they've now got two deities that they can pray to, one for grain and and one is a bit of religious insurance on the side, the God of Israel. They kind of think, 
in an economic and an efficient way of worship that either will do. It's a bit like Joseph. Any dream will do. Any God will do. But notice what's being said here. If Dagon fell once, that would be interesting enough. The God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, he is powerful. And the God of the Philistines bows before him, literally and physically, and symbolically too. But if it happens a second time, which it did, verse 4, and following of 1 Samuel 5, and if the head falls off, and if the hands fall off, which would not be a coincidence, what is the symbolism here? This then is saying that the God of Israel is the true God. He is the only God. It's Dick Lucas who said these words. Don't come to Christianity because it's exciting, although it is. Don't come to Christianity because it's powerful, although there is great and tremendous power in Christianity. Come to Christianity because it's true. Very helpful. You need to explore Christianity. If you're not yet a Christian, it's wonderful that you're here. You need to come with your questions. There's nothing that we wouldn't want to wrestle with with you with the Bible open. But friends, don't come to God because he works for you. You come to God because he is true. Now, what does this teach us about drawing near to God? There's a negative and a few principles and positives as well. First of all, tracking? Here we go. The presence of God is never permanently connected to any one thing. Now, where did I get that from? It's never permanently connected to any one object. God is a person. He's not a force. Therefore, although sometimes in the Bible, and often it's the ark of God, God's presence is manifest, it's localized, it's called a theophany. God reveals himself. He speaks from the mercy seat. He's never permanently stuck to or limited any one thing. He will show that he's sovereign by removing himself from that object. Notice how that happened in 1 Samuel 4. We've been defeated. Quick, Hophni and Phineas say, let's get the ark out because God will fight for us. And God removes himself from the ark so that his people are judged because of their spiritual idolatry and their spiritual coolness towards him. But... When the ark of God is brought before Dagon and the God of the Philistines is brought low, when, without anyone surrounding, no Israelites near the ark of the Lord, what happens? God, in his sovereign glory, strikes the whole Philistine nation with a plague. He doesn't need anybody. Friends, God is not stuck permanently to any one thing. Now, where do we see this? Let's flesh this out because this is a bit remote. Say, for example, there is a church you know. There are many churches like this. There's an unnamed church you know. And 30, 50, 100 years ago, there was a significant time, praise God, of blessing and prosperity where the gospel was explained and hundreds and thousands of people became Christians. Praise God for that. But there was a specific way of dressing, a specific style of music. There was a specific Bible type that had to be read. There was one place that you would go. And God revealed himself in a unique, localized, time-bonded way. There are many churches who are still living in that age. 50, 100 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. But friends, God is not bound to any one place or method or means. Say, for example, you've come along to us this morning, and, and yet, as you've got to know us, you think, actually, the music could be better. It could, but it's good. Actually, the coffee could be better. It could, but it's good as well. Say you come to us from a different church tradition, 
where God has drawn him, you to himself, has really blessed you, you've become a Christian in that tradition. And you come here and then you think, actually, if the preaching is not spirit-empowered in this way, if the singing is not spirit-empowered in this way and by this means, if the music is not presented in this way, if the banners are not put in this way, then God is not here because God revealed himself to me that time in that place. Friends, that's not how it works. God is not limited or bonded to a, a type of singing, a type of dress, a tradition, a location, a time. Imagine if Moses went to God and said, I will not worship you, God, unless you come to me at a bush. Yeah, here is God in Exodus chapter 3. He reveals himself uniquely in a one-off in a burning bush. But it was time bonded and then God revealed himself in a unique way to Moses again and again and again. Here's Hophni and Phineas to say, this is the way that we can guarantee a victory. We can behave however we like, but God will win a battle for us if we bring out the ark of God. It's bringing out the big guns. And God chose not to, to humble his people and to judge them in his righteous judgment. Why did God do that? Because God is not tame. And God knows our hearts. And if there is one specific way, time, location, thing that God uses to reveal himself to us, we will worship that thing and not him. And so God humbles us and God moves on. He's not tame. And he's not bonded to time and to space. It happens all the time in the Bible. That's why you've got this difference in 1 Samuel 4 and 5 with the ark. That's why God can strike the whole Philistine nation with tumors, with no one needed by the side. We should do our best, therefore, to have great music, great preaching, teaching, great small groups. But God is not bound to those things. God is not limited to those things. It's all him, not great music, not preaching, not singing. God moves in mysterious ways. And it's so humbling, because if he didn't work like that, we would end up worshipping a thing and not him. But if that's what God does not drawn to, here are three things that God is. You can whack them all up. Here are three uh, principles that God's presence is always drawn to from this passage again. God's presence is always committed to or connected to total commitment. It's all, God's presence is always connected to total commitment. What do I mean? This uh, piece of gold that I've had on my hand, not for as long as you have, brother, not for 25 years, I'm only celebrating a paltry 19 this Christmas time. This is not just a fine piece of jewelry. It's the only jewelry I've ever worn in my life, and probably the only will, one I will do, although I'm tempted to get my nose pierced just for the sheer fun of it, and maybe with a chain. Um, I could sort of swing, but maybe not. That time is gone. This piece of jewellery is not a symbol only of present-day happiness and joy. When people get married, when they scrub up the best they can, when I looked as good as I could, when things were not going as south as they were, when my waist was a bit narrow and all that stuff, you do your best on your wedding day if you get married to look the best you can for that person and you give each other a piece of jewellery. This piece of jewellery is far more important than its inherent worth of £10 or whatever it was down the market when I bought it. It's a sign not of present-day love. It's a sign of future 
commitment. It's I love you today and you look great. But more important than that, I'll love you tomorrow. And I want to love you in as many years as God would give us. That's why it's there. Marriage is a promise of future commitment and of present joy, I hope. Perhaps even tears sometimes. And here we have the ark, the ark of the covenant, the ark of God. And it's a sign of God's presence. It's a sign and the means that God communicates on the mercy seat. But I've told you what it looks like and I've told you how big it is. But inside it was the law. A copy of the law and some other things as well. And it's the art of covenant or the the ark of relationship, you could say. And it contained the law of God. And here you've got Hophni and Phinehas, these two guys. And what are they trying to do with it? They're trying to bring out the ark of God like a trump card. They are living in a way, 1 Samuel 4, where they can do whatever they want to whomever they want, whenever they want. I've said to you, seducing women, stealing money, not treating God with any respect or honor that he deserves. They're treating him a bit like magic. Here is God. We can use God's power and favor whenever we want to do whatever we want. Wholehearted discipleship, commitment to God, worship, appropriate awe and respect to God was nowhere near their lips, their heart or their actions. I want God's power, they're saying. I want this victory. Let's get the ark of the God of Israel out. But my heart is far from him. It just does not work that way. It's not what God calls us to. The first thing we see here is that the presence of God is always connected with, it's always connected with total commitment. That's why God's presence left, because his people were far from him. That's the first thing. If you want to know God, if you want to dare to draw near to God, the principle is total life-changing commitment. I want you more than anything else. Please reveal yourself more to me. Everything else can go by the wayside. I want you. Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless me. Please show me more of your glory, says Moses. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. God's presence is always connected to the destruction of idols. Whenever you get near to God, 1 Samuel chapter 5, whenever you get near to God, your idols will fall. When I was a student, long time ago, two decades ago, I met a man called Cliff Phillips. Cliff Phillips is a wonderful guy. He has a brilliant car collection, or, or he did. And I'm not talking about toy cars. I'm talking about big, Bugsy Malone-esque, old-fashioned, curvy cars that you kind of get driven to weddings in. One of those. But he didn't have one. He had three. He wasn't a Christian man long because he had worshipped and served and spent all his money on the renovation and the running and the showing and the enjoyment of these three amazing cars. I said as a 23-year-old or something like that at the time, can I see the cars? No, I've only got one, I've sold two. What do you mean you sold two? Well, they took over my life. They were what I, would live, I was living for and, and now I've become a Christian. I've still got one so I can play around with it and tinker around and go for drives, but I've got a new love in my heart. Those were his very words, I've got a new love in my heart. He was a man who for many years, a lot of his of years of being a dad had been wasted, he said, by going and worshipping and showing these cars. They were the most precious thing to him in all the world. And he said, I can't get that time back. But a new love has come into my heart, so I've sold two and I've still got one. But friends, if you want to seek God's presence, one of the things that happens is that your idol must fall. 
It may not be cars. It won't be probably a physical carving in your home. It might be. But I have and you have a bottom line. We're far more subtle these days. We have things that are very precious to us. But you have and I have something. Something that keeps you up at night. Might be a bank balance. Something that you would fear losing more than anything. It might be your kids. And something that you can say, this is the thing that I have. And when I have this, I know I'm a someone. Is it a career? Is it a partner? And the scary thing is from 1 Samuel 5 is God will do whatever he needs to to prize your hands off that precious and to make that idol fall. There's no getting close to God on your terms with your hands full of stuff. God will do whatever he needs to to show you his wisdom and his power. Often he does it graciously and kindly. Sometimes he does it dramatically. Sometimes it's slowly. 1 Samuel 5 reminds us of the biblical principle that when you come close to God in his presence, every single idol will fall. And Dagon does that twice, literally. Here's the third thing. The presence of God is always connected to the mercy seat. Remember the ark? Remember the ark of God? Why is it that God kept his presence in the ark in a different way than he did with the burning bush or with the wrestler of Jacob or the whirlwind of Job? Why did God presence himself there repeatedly but not always, 1 Samuel 4 and 5? I think because the ark of God is designed with those two cherubim facing each other with a void in between. The ark is designed to give you a picture of how you can come to God personally. It's there as a visual aid for you and for me. God spoke out of the glory. He spoke out of the void between the two cherubim. Why was there not an image there? Why was there not a thing there? Why was there not a carving or an object that we could say, there is our God, because God knows our hearts. And if there was an object, if there was an edifice, if there was a sculpture there, we would worship that and not him. That's how we work. Our hearts, John Calvin said, are idol factories. We, we love to worship other things than God. But between the cherubim, there was a void from which God spoke. It looked like the, uh, there should have been an object there, could have been an image there, but there wasn't. And God spoke from the mercy seat. Whenever the high priest or Moses would go into the Holy of Holies, this, this cube, tiny tabernacle space at the back of the temple and the tabernacle where people would go and worship God. Once a year, the high priest would go in or Moses was going in. They couldn't go in by themselves. They had to go in with blood and the blood would go on the mercy seat as a covering, almost as a shield to protect them from the holiness of God and the demands of the law. The law was underneath and no one could stand in God's presence unless they had blood, sacrificial blood of a one-year-old lamb that would cover their sin before a holy God. But when the blood was there on the mercy seat, God spoke. God appeared. The glory appeared. And when we fast forward to the New Testament, when we look at the book like Hebrews, why is there no image there? Because Jesus is the image. Why is there no uh, image there? Because God brought us an image in human flesh, and his name is Jesus. 
How is Jesus described? Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, he is the express image of God. He's literally a chip off the old block. When you look at Jesus, you hear the voice of God. Jesus is the ark of God. Jesus is the lampstand of God. Jesus is the, the bread of God. Jesus is the lamb of God. Jesus is the glory of God on display, the glory of God speaking, walking, talking. And so when you go all the way to Revelation, we're covering a lot of ground. When you go all the way to Revelation, what's the shape of the new heaven and the new earth as it descends symbolically and pictorially? It's a cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And yet why is there no tabernacle? Why is there no showbread? Why is there no lampstand there? Because... Because the Lamb is there. And who's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? His name is Jesus. Jesus is our tabernacle. Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the glory of God. And when you get that, to the degree you grasp that, and God reveals himself to you, then you'll get nearer and nearer to God to enjoy him. These are the principles Make sure that what God says is true. Think. Christians, non-Christians, we never leave our brains at the door. We always think what the Bible says. Is this true? We wrestle with it. Make sure it's true. And then you lay yourself out in total commitment. God will smash your idols. And maybe you need to do some too. But you always come to God over the mercy seat, knowing what it cost him. And the blood is not of a sacrificial offering from the Old Testament. You know, it's the blood of his own son, Jesus. This is the way in to draw near to God. It's through his son for the praise and for his glory. Let's pray.